0: Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast. He is Chris Marlar. I am Conor Guerra Marler. It's Friday, but it is anything but casual today. It's been it's been a crazy week in our country and quite frankly I, I really don't know where to start with all this. It feels weird to be talking about SEC football on a day like today when there, is, there are so many bigger things going on in our world that is dividing our country, and it feels wrong to a certain extent not to sit here and, and talk about all of those things instead, but at the same time, I don't know where you're kind of at on, on everything that's been going on this entire week with Jacob Blake and with everything that has happened in the aftermath since then and the pro- protests at professional sporting events, but Man, I'm just, I am, uh, I am drained right now. Absolutely you, drained.
1: I don't mean this in a bad way. You look, you look drained. Like, like, and I, and I feel it in the same way because, I, I just, that was the thing I wanted to say at first. I, I, I'm just exhausted. I'm exhausted from this. It's like, how many, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to say this from like a political standpoint of like, I'm, you know, but there's a part of me that we're like, I'm tired of hearing about it because I'm tired of it happening. You know what I mean? It's right. like, how is it? How are we still here? And it's not funny. I'm not laughing at that, but it just, it, and it it kind of surprises me that it's still this like dividing and polarizing and all that kind of stuff. And we're not going to like, this is the second time we've had to have this conversation or maybe third it's been on a, an SEC football podcast. It's
0: been at least that. Um, We're not going to necessarily talk about whether or not, you know, we think SEC players are going to be protesting or or anything like that. So anybody that heard that first minute and thought, oh, I'm not going to listen to this. No. We do have stuff that we are going to get to today. We have an interview with David Johnson, who covers Ole Miss for 24-7 sports, and about his his insights covering Ole Miss. Uh, There were some things that I wanted to be able to talk to him about that. And then also – his battle with COVID, yeah. and somebody who yeah. was on his deathbed and spent 21 days on life support and just has an they incredible story. don't kill story. nobody. I mean, goodness gracious. Okay. Uh, definitely stay tuned for that. Unfortunately, Marler, because of your situation, being under the weather on a day like today, I flew solo on that interview, but you are gutting it through to be able to talk about some SEC coaches on the hot seat?
1: I don't This is the worst. I'm, I'm so tired. Like, I don't know. I had like food poisoning or something. I think it's like a stomach bug. Me and Allie both had it like the other day, and then it was fine yesterday. It's like a twenty-four hour thing, and then today we're right back to square one. And I don't understand what's going on. I feel like I'm on my deathbed, even though I'm not. I hope.
0: If we have a break in the podcast, there's a ninety-five percent <laughs> chance it is Marla running to the bathroom to puke, which isn't the first time that's happened. While we no, been but I was.
1: This is the first time it happened when I'm sober. You know what I mean? Like now, it's like I'm kidding. But yeah, it's um, it's been a crazy week, and I think it's uh. As always, I'll say, you know, like I don't, like you were saying, I don't want anyone to think that we're going to have some, like, politically driven podcast. It's not going to be, as much as I hate to say it, it's not like a woke ESPN episode or anything like that. This, I, like, but it, it does, it is something that's important enough to be addressed, and I think important enough, and we might not all see eye to eye on it, and and that's fine, that's fine. I think the discourse is the most important part, Connor. I, I don't, I, I wish that that was more accepted you know what I mean like you know I I shout out to I had somebody yesterday that reached out and they said they um I I made a point to say about the 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 latest incident obviously that happened in Wisconsin and and it's like because somebody compared it to being struck by lightning you're you're more likely you're you're 10 times more likely to be struck by lightning than killed by a police officer and and that's I don't know, factually true, I guess. I don't, I'm not sure, I never looked at that stat. I thought it was a really bad comparison. I didn't like it. There's a couple people in my mentions that also um, you know, kind of felt the same way. And um, we ended up having just a conversation and it was fine. It was totally fine. And, and I, we don't all have to see eye to eye on it, but I do think it's something that if we can't look at it and say, hey, this is happening. This is a thousand percent happening like in front of us. you know, it, it's, How many times do people have to be struck by lightning?
0: Man, that's a good question. Um, this is a time right now where I feel like just getting off of getting off of social media, not the yeah. worst thing in the world. Just set those push notifications on your phone to all things SDS. Do that. Make sure every time yeah. there's a news story up, it goes straight to your phone. That's the only thing that you have to read. You don't have to spend any other time on social media. You know, join our Facebook group. Make sure you get all the notifications whenever Jay Woody or whoever's posting articles. Make sure you get all of those Woody. too so you can read all, all stories on SDS. But yeah. other than that, you know what? The internet... Sometimes just not the best place to to, to be. And I, after two days of driving to Indianapolis, which is where I currently am as I'm recording, as we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, um, after two days of driving through the entire Southeast basically and and getting here, um, it was revealing to to find out what has been going on in the world. And um, we're going to try and not necessarily brush past this. I know we keep saying that, but at the same time, um, hopefully, we can provide some sort of escape for some very real times in our country.
1: You know, the last thing I'll say about that is, and it's only going to take thirty minutes of me on a, a soapbox saying it. No, I'm kidding. But it's like the last thing I'll say about it is, it, like maybe like we we love you guys, and and again, I know that we all don't see eye to eye, and I know that like we're, it, it's we're at a time now where. I, it is it is exhausting to like, be like man, I really just, I do want to watch sports. Like, I want to watch sports and I want to like not have to be constantly reminded of all this terribleness, but at the same time, it's like, man, we aren't doing our, our job as a society and being a positive influence and, and and members of society by brushing past it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think the only thing I would say is, like I said yesterday, I I, I made a comment that was like, it's consistently happening. Somebody brought up, like kind of pushed back on that a little and and- and I, don't, I still don't feel wrong about my stance, but I learned something from having the conversation with somebody who had an opposing viewpoint. And I think if we can just all try our best to do that, instead of just shouting into the abyss that is Twitter and social media, and I'm guilty of that at, at times as well, but like, just, let's just try our best to be open-minded about, about an opposing viewpoint and, and learn from everything that's happened in, in this year. And then, and get that out of the way, because in 30 days we're playing college football. In the SEC, am I right? And we could just get back to hating each other purely based on where you went to school or who you cheer for.
0: We are one month away from college football. If there is a, a silver lining um, of what's been going on, I think that's it. There's going to be some opposing viewpoints on SEC coaches who entered the season on the hot seat, and that's what what I kind of wanted to break down today because there is no comparison for this year in college football. As we already know, it's weird in every way imaginable. And I wrote about this a few weeks ago on SDS, but we haven't really talked about it. And it's something that we talk about throughout the season as it relates to who should get fired and whatnot and all that different stuff. But my question so much isn't, what does each coach have to do in order to avoid the hot seat? And by the way, as I talk about these coaches that are on the proverbial hot seat, it's pretty—I mean, it's—I don't want to say it's unanimous, but the the most likely candidates on that list to show up on one of those lists will must champ, <laughs> will must champ, Derek Mason, Gus Malzahn. That, those were the three. Correct me Wait, if is I'm Is Gus wrong. really on it? Gus is always on the hot seat. When is he not on the hot seat?
1: No, I mean, I, I I was saying it as a joke, and I, you're not wrong. I, just, I thought it was like, he beat Bama last year.
0: Beat Oregon last year, Who's the Outback though. Bowl, brother. But it would be weird if Gus wasn't entering the season with some question about yeah. his job security moving forward. I can actually make a better seat for, no, the, there, there shouldn't be any coach on the hot seat this year. And that's going to yeah. sound frustrating. And I know fans are going to listen to that and think, so coaches just don't have any sort of standard that they have to live up to in 2020? No, I'm not necessarily saying that. And if a team goes oh and down or something like that, or if they have a bunch of arrests, obviously that comes back to the, to the head coach. And that's not a good look. And I'm not saying that athletic directors are going to specifically say, oh, no, no matter what, everybody has a free pass. But here's what I keep coming back to with all this. If you're an athletic director and... You you are sitting here going into this season acknowledging that this year is unlike any other, where conference win percentage is suddenly everything. I mean, everything. And I say that because it's not even about getting to a bowl game. CBS Sports' Jerry Palm has 14 SEC teams getting to a bowl game. You know how many teams there are in the SEC? 14. Wait,
1: what? Okay, hold on. we got to talk about that. So Adam Spencer, our, our good buddy, uh, living out in Oak, not Oakland, but... Um, isn't it real quick, isn't it weird that if you say somebody lives in San Francisco, it sounds great, but if they live in Oakland, it does not, and they're, like, literally across the bay from each other. Anyway, moving on. Um, like, Adam Spencer tweeted something yesterday, and I thought it was a joke. I texted him, and I was like, dude, this is an all-time tweet, and he was talking about Kansas and Arkansas playing in a bowl and Vandy and Tech playing in a bowl game, and I thought that that he was just making a funny.
0: No, and, no, it it's real.
1: It was <laughs>
0: It's real. That's where we're at. We still have to figure out what these bowl situations are going to look like because they could all be different. Who's still able to have games? Who still wants to be able to, to have these? And, you know, at some point, is it not even financially worth it for some of these bowl games to happen? Yeah. But as of right now, we know that these bowl games are scheduled to happen with the exception of the Red Box Bowl, which has already been canceled. The regular season win totals for... Auburn, six and a half. South Carolina, three and a half. Vandy is one. Should that, though, even set the expectation for what is deemed a successful season? Because think about this. Coaches could have players in quarantine who, you know, maybe if if Auburn is, is scheduled to play Mississippi State, but it's like, oh, well, Auburn is without Bo Nicks and they're, you know, without dj williams or something like that or you know whoever and they're not playing a game at full strength and they lose a game that they you would think that at full strength that they would win or at the same time the reverse could happen where you have teams that are winning games that you would not expect them to win on the surface or as we sit here going into a season we would not bank on on them winning these specific games so i think it's so strange that we could be in a situation where there could be some athletic directors at the end of the season who say, yeah, let's, let's make it so that this win total is the bar that these coaches have to hit when for a team like Vandy or South Carolina, think about it. Expectations are so low that you're essentially saying like one or two games in this weird year is everything. And it's going to dictate probably the next half decade, at least of your program and what you're able to do. I mean, like, Vandy's first good news that it's had the entire offseason is that Demetri Moore, their leading tackler, is actually not opting out. Like, a player who is supposed to be playing, who announced he wasn't playing, is actually playing. That's the best news that's happened in Vandy. Meanwhile, South Carolina just found out that Marshawn Lloyd is out for the year. That's Die. still tailback. That they were looking forward to to kind of building their ground game around. And so, you factor in From all these Delaware. things. <sighs> You factor Dale in all these. 312.
1: Things. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know two. why you had
0: to shout out Delaware for that. That was <laughs> weird. You factor in all these things. And how can you truly use this year to shape the next half decade of your program? We don't know where these universities are going to be from a financial standpoint as well. Something to remember where you have even say what you want about Dabo. Dabo is the highest paid coach in college football. Even Dabo's taking a six figure pay cut. I mean, like everybody is yeah. is is getting impacted by this in some way, shape, or form. Will Muschamp, Gus Malzahn, they got buyouts in the eight figures. Muschamp's buyout is at thirteen million dollars if he's fired after this year's. <laughs> Gus Malzahn's buyout isn't gonna dip below eight figures until twenty twenty three. Think
1: about that. Okay, what is his buyout this year?
0: Oh, it's like twenty two million or something, crap like that. So
1: he he shouldn't be on the hot seat, in my opinion. Like like he, I, I'm not I'm not gonna say he's he's not like I'm, I'm not gonna have the same coach o pep talk that we had two years ago when when coach o was on the band on the on the hot seat and we were talking about how you know uh it, it, should he be fired if he doesn't have a good season especially with like the, the the slate of games in front of him and we all know how that worked out and i'm trying to pull it up right now like gus malzahn against the sec has been pretty good he's fifth fifth uh I'm sorry, that's that's not accurate. He is. They've been uh, against the SEC. His coaching records. He has been fourth in the conference, um, at 34 and 24 as a head coach. That's. I mean, like we think about that. Like it's only behind Jimbo Fisher, um, who has a lot of those wins that stacked up against. But uh, well, That shouldn't
0: from, even count because Florida that's State. against the ACC and that's not against the SEC. Right. ACC.
1: So when you really talk about it, like it's it's Saban who's obviously like way up 126 and 29 career against the SEC at Alabama. Uh, or career overall, I mean, and then uh, Kirby twenty six and ten, which is incredibly impressive at you know his first three four years, and then you have Malzahn at thirty four. Like, I think that would surprise a lot of people that, you know, you really look at this list, including Jimbo. There's only four of the fourteen coaches overall that have a winning record against the SEC all time. Think about that, and and, and Malzahn's one of them by by ten games, and and that's not just because. Well, he had a really good year in, in 2013, his first year. No, like, that's a consistency thing. And and I think um, it, Gus, I, I will crap on Auburn as much as possible the week of the Iron Bowl. You know what I mean? Like, when, when it really comes out. But at the same time, like, I feel like Gus should not be on this list. I feel like, like, we talked about what, what Coach O had in front of him and what he would have to do to save his, his job. And I think that's a different scenario, you know, going into the 2018 season. With him because he'd only been there for basically a year and a half and they were already calling for his job with gus he's been there for a while and you kind of know what he what we have with gus but at the same time what we have with gus is pretty good it, like he's you know i mean he's beaten bama three times since 2013 you know what i mean like it, he i think he's he's done a lot better so i don't think he should be on the hot seat at all um that's just my opinion and and that's not just because i'm a bama fan that. that thinks he's not great and, and you know, they, they could beat him or anything like that. Um, I wish they would bring back Tuberville. I wish, you know, that, that would be fantastic <laughs> for us. Um, but I think when you look at the stuff with going into this season with Muschamp and Mason, you, you brought up the win totals. And I think you, you said it's a very good number for both of them. What scares me is this. Like, the, I talked about this yesterday on the Spurs Up show with our, our good buddy, the bearded tomato, Chris Phillips, and, and we were talking about how – you know he's frustrated because he thinks this should be this already should have been the last year for us champ he should have been fired last year and in going into last season I, I i was kind of in the camp of well you know he's he's like one of those coaches where this is a make or break year sure but that schedule is it's a, like it's an impossible schedule for what he had in place and and now you look at it this year with with south carolina who I think is going to be a lot better than people are giving them credit for. Mm-hmm. I think that defense is going to be one of the best. And, uh, like, I think the defense will be in the top half of the SEC. I think the defense will be one of the most improved, if not the most improved, in the conference. Um, I, I, I He's finally brought up, brought in some real talent. He's got two five-stars on the defensive line alone. You know I mean? How many five-stars has South Carolina brought in in their entire existence as a program? He's got two that secondary He's got two potential first-round picks at cornerback. You know what I mean? Like, he's he's got a lot of talent there. I just – it, like we we made the excuse I think kind of last year for him, like you know if he if he if he you can't you can't have it be the make or break season when he has the the toughest schedule in the country, and then you look at it next year and it's like well he's got the toughest schedule in the country again, and then the schedule changes and he arguably has an even tougher schedule because it's conference only. So I don't know the right decision to say should he be fired if he doesn't have a good year uh, or not because his five wins possible for that team like i think it is but at the same time like like if if you if you last year south carolina was able to have a what should have been a program not defining but like a all-time memorable win for that program beating number three georgia and they went four and eight you know what i mean like they ended a five-year drought and losing streak to kentucky and none of that really is like i mean people obviously remember the georgia upset but like what did it what did it get you? You know what I mean. If you still went four and eight, you still lost to App State. You still lost to UNC in the first game. Like you lost all the games that you really needed to win. So,
0: I bring all this up because your point is correct, and there are a lot of things that you said there that applies to all things logic and reason. And I what? Think, yeah, no, no, trust me. I, I think I did that's it perfectly logical. <laughs> but you know as well as anyone what happens when that 1 and 2 start happens what happens yeah. when you start off 2 and 4 all of a sudden it's like th- that that whole buzz about oh well you know what it's just it's it's time to make a change it's it's mm-hmm. a defeated season it's not getting any better we've seen we've seen how far this coach can take us and i wanted to bring this up now before the season because I truly feel like, and while I'm I'm one that I, I'd like to think that I hold coaches accountable, and I've been, you know, I was adamant I thought Derek Mason should have been fired last year. I said that. Yeah. And I, I did not think that he necessarily warranted to, to have a, a year seven, which is what he is going into at Vandy. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And we're talking yeah. about the majority of a decade, and that's not to say that he can't have any sort of success this year. But, you know, I think that in a year like this, where there are so many moving pieces and nothing that you've judged your coach on before has been similar to what they're going to go through this year and nothing after is going to be like a year like this as well, or at least we don't think. So I think it's weird that coaches are put in this place from athletic directors where athletic directors feel like so often that they can rarely just stand pat. Like if they stand pat, it's, Oh, we're not necessarily showing the public how we feel about them. And that just creates more indecisiveness when you, and I've gone on my rants on this before about the ridiculous extensions that have been really kind of swept under the rug during the 2010s and what's led to some of these awful buyouts. And I brought up the stat before about how 33 coaches in FBS had eight figure buyouts going into last season and how that's absolutely absurd. Think about this. Muschamp and Malzahn after this year, After this year, they're still under contract for four more (laughs) years. Four more years. And at the same time, there's like this, oh, well, you know, if we don't tack on another year or two to their deal or something like that, it's like, oh, what is that saying to all the recruits out there? From a recruiting standpoint, it shouldn't matter if you have four more years on your deal. If you're an athletic director and you honestly think that you have to make a move because, oh, maybe recruits are going to talk or you got to give more security, that's so dumb. And I hate that we've gotten to that place now where it's just like it it almost doesn't even matter how many years are tacked on. And I get why it's done because it's done for optics. It's done for optics and it's done because athletic directors want to give their coach more security because they know how closely that their job is associated to that. So think about that for Muschamp and Malzahn. Whenever somebody mentions that, the hot seat stuff, be reminded of the fact that they still have four more full years on their contract after this year where if you just do nothing, if you just do nothing, you could still make that decision theoretically later, save yourself some money, and not necessarily be like, oh, well, you know, COVID season had to make a move. They only won X amount of conference games.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird because it's like I don't think that that necessarily – is the mindset? You know what's what's funny to me about this is, we're so stupid. I think as fans at this point, like where it's like, okay, you're upset that, and South Carolina fans have every right to be frustrated with where the program's at. And, no doubt. Know, and I get one hundred percent. You know, and somebody brought this up in our five star reviews at one time, and and I, I've been misquoting this stat, and that's going to shock you because usually every stat that I ever say is like spot on. Like I mean, it's just especially sure. USC uh, Southern Cal draft picks, mm-hmm. but. That being said, they—I've said like for the past couple years, like you know, that's a program that's only had five nine-plus win seasons. It was only four, and three of them literally had just happened. You know what I mean? So it's—it's it's like it's not easy to replace Spurrier. It's—it's it's not like you know the—that's not the easiest task that that Muschamp has been has been given. That being said, I, I just feel like if. If we're gonna give, if we're gonna give him an extra year or two, and we're gonna sign him to an extension or whatever, that that's where your anger should originally be be positioned. Like exactly, if, like if you if you are frustrated with where the, the the what do you call it is, where if you're frustrated where like the program is, I get it, but also like. We're at a point where money is just such like it's just such a non-issue. It's not a, a like an object. It's not an obstacle. It's not any of those things for universities. They're like, you know what? Screw it. Like Malzahn getting fifty million dollars yeah, in extension forty nine because he beat Bama in a in a game where in a season where they still won the national championship. Like, I, I just I, I think it's a great feat, and I'm not trying to crap on that that game or accomplishment but like if we're gonna build if we're gonna base a 49 million dollar extension that like in the way in the way that like conference or the way i'm sorry the way coaching like contracts have gone for the past i don't know connor five years minimum where we see like how many of those coaches are living out or or, or coaching through the end of those contracts it never happens it's like there's always a buyout you know like like i hope i hope jimbo fisher for a and m's sake wins 10 games every year and is a great coach and, and coaches there until he retires. He won't. Like, what are the chances he even lives out this 75? Not lives out, but coaches out this, like, this 10 year 75 million dollars contract not great it it is that's that's a problem everywhere so it's like if we're gonna be if we're gonna hold these coaches so accountable and then realize like like you're hamstringing yourself as a university like you know what sure you just went seven and six but you had one big win and and i'm talking about muschamp not miles on but like you had one big win so let's go ahead and give you an extra four years on an extension and and an astronomical amount of money that you really don't deserve that much and then you know worse comes to worst, we'll just pay you Fifteen million dollars on a buyout later. There are there are there are programs that are still paid. Like Brett Bielema, well, uh, he's had he's had a little bit of a snag with his lawsuit, but but yeah. I,
0: I think Bielema's is going to get his money.
1: Is Chizik still getting paid?
0: Chiswick's Serious not getting question. More okay,
1: but you still have like there's a lot of places that like up you know these like Bobby Bonilla type contracts that these these universities are are giving out and extensions, and then it almost every time on the back end it's like well you know. We gotta pay it. We gotta we gotta have buyout, and it's like an astronomical number. But we have to do it because we're having so much pressure from the fans. It, like, and then and then what ends up happening from there? You end up you end up signing. You pay that buyout. That's usually like you said, around eight figures. You pay that buyout, and then you bring in a new coach that a lot of times is unproven, or you bring in and it, it, he is proven. So you have to pay him even more money. Uh, like it's just how like learn your lesson, guys.
0: This is a year in which I almost, I really almost feel like, as it relates to extensions, as it relates to firings, just maybe hold off. If you're an (laughs) athletic director, when you have all those things that you mentioned with all these coaches under contract for, you know, at least another five to seven years or however much this is, if there is ever a year in which athletic directors should take a step back and say, you know what, maybe we don't do that. And (laughs) because I I was saying before- Maybe we don't do that. (laughs) Right? I was saying before how this feels like a year in which an Iowa State or a UNC is all of a sudden playing in a playoff game. And yeah. we're like, how in the world did that happen during this year when that just felt so random? And you know what? Maybe there's going to be several teams that are catching teams at the exact right time, and they get mm-hmm. to a 9-1 and one record. And we're like, well, crap, that, that's never happened before. And I almost feel like if you're if you're making these decisions – You have to take this into account and not say that it's not an accomplishment because it absolutely is. But how many of these coaches are going to get rewarded for potentially having this year where, yeah, they're dealing with circumstances that are strange, but so is everybody else as well. And how many of these coaches are going to end up with bad contracts as a result of being able to maybe maximize their potential during this COVID year? And I just come back to this belief of like, it seems so weird and strange and dumb to base anything for your program moving forward off of a year like this one. When uh, we, yeah. we're preparing for the unexpected this year, we truly are. And when you look at those regular season over unders, I mean that that in itself kind of shows you how how bizarre it is to think about Alabama and, and Georgia having you know regular season over unders at 8.5 wins or whatever. But I See, just those think, numbers jump? <sighs> say it <that> again. <laughs>
1: They see those numbers jump from seven and a half to eight and a half?
0: Yeah, and I get that. I get that, but yeah, I mean, and especially with like Derek Mason. When look, I thought he should have been gone last year, but okay. So if he wins two games, that convinces you that he's going to be the head coach moving forward, as yeah. opposed to one. I like why it's,
1: it's hard to justify. It's hard. It's it's this year more than ever. It's hard to justify any of those those uh reasons like to to not like to fire someone you know it's like it, it is um it, it's very difficult I I completely agree with you I am not um on board though with the the Mason thing because because in a like Mason should have already been gone and, and I I love Derek Mason like in my opinion the coach at Vandy and James Franklin screwed this up for everybody but like the coach at Vandy is like I don't know a kindergarten teacher in my opinion like you know what let them ride it out until they get pension and just retire or whatever like that, that there's only so much they're going to be able to accomplish like did that that kid learn how to read great that that teacher she's great at finger painting teaching and all that kind of stuff let them let them be there for 30 years i think that's how all, like vanderbilt should approach having any coach to be honest because it's like what do you expect from Derek mason like you you brought up the win totals the win total is one. The win total is one, and that's not the scary part. The scary part is the odds on it, okay? One. Not one and a hook and one and a half, one One total. The odds on it are plus, hold on here, plus 140 to get over. Minus 170 to be under. The prob- and so it's like,
0: what? Well, the problem is just that every time Vandy overachieves, it's, it results in a contract extension. Like, look right. at all the different times that Melzahn not Melzahn that Mason has been giving an extension at Vandy. It's like, oh, Vandy made a bowl game. Got to be able to give Derek Mason that extension. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so he's. It seems like, and especially with a new athletic director on board, which that yeah. stuff matters. It absolutely does. Yeah. Okay, so if Vandy overachieves, then Mason's going to get extended. But then if he doesn't win two games, he's going to get fired. Like, why are we? Why? Why is it so? Yeah. It shouldn't be so dependent on that in a year like this. That's my only point.
1: No, I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. I just, I'm all, I'm still in the same boat of he should not be the coach. He should, he should have already been gone. If, if you're going to fire him, like you said, like he should have already been gone. And and I hate to say it, but it's like, because again, I talked about this yesterday with, with like the Spurs Up show thing. And it was like, where are our expectations versus what the reality is? And I think that the ceiling is so, so low for a place like, like Vanderbilt and, and, and honestly, at South Carolina, like if, if we're being honest, the reason why South Carolina fans really want Muschamp gone is not because of the losses. It's not like they lost to app state last year. App state was an 11 win team. That's like a, actually a respectable loss. They're upset because all of their rivals are surpassing them. And and they went from winning five in a row against Clemson and having Steve Spurrier on stage at a Kenny Chesney concert, talking trash to all the Clemson fans, waving the five fingers to getting trounced every year by their in-state rival. And that happened real quick. I mean, like, real, real quick. And so, if, if you're upset about that, I get it. But, like, if you get a new coach... And, and, and then you have to implement this whole new system and they have have to bring in, you know, a new staff and then, you know, new recruits. He's got to get his players in. It's this, that's a three to four year process every time. And I don't understand why people don't get that because it's a three to four year process for every coach. We heard Chiswick say it, the same thing about going to 2013, what he thought was going to be able to happen with his, his guys coming back, his recruits. And then he got fired a year early. If, if that's a three to four year process, you can't keep firing people after three years. You know what I mean? Like it just it it makes no sense. I I just I I, I think Muschamp. I hate to, I hate to feel like I'm moving the goalpost or moving the target here, but like I think Muschamp deserves to stay through a year like this because he has the most potential out of him and Mason to to achieve what the fan base is hoping for, right? Like if 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 he is able to stay with the facilities they have and the upgrades they have are there, all the new talent they've been bringing in, like you know the way he's been recruiting. And they just got a five-star quarterback. And, and people, started, yep. that that kid, man, um, from Rabin County up there in uh, in North Georgia. But he like, he just got a, a five-star 5 quarterback. So I think that honestly is another thing that could save him. There's so much more potential for what he is building from a recruiting standpoint and, and the facility upgrades that are finally coming, like to catch up with the rest of the league. Versus when you look at Vandy, it's like, what, what could happen? Like what could happen at Vanderbilt? Cause it really took a perfect storm, even for James Franklin. Like, Georgia had to be down. Florida had to be inept at, on offense. And, like, you know, I, I just – it takes a lot more, I think, t- for Vandy to have any kind of sustained success.
0: If you are a South Carolina fan, I'm sorry. You are in college football hell in so many yeah. ways just because of that buyout. And it looms because, uh, let's be honest, if Will Muschamp's buyout was a penny, he would have been fired last year. I mean, there's <laughs> – I don't think there's any way around that, but – that number is still there, and to be looking at an eight-figure buyout is is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. And South Carolina fans, they might have to bite their tongue in a year like this, and that sucks. And you might not be a Will Muschamp supporter. I know that there are many people who wanted him gone last year, and I understand that. The problem is those dynamics. Those dynamics could potentially impact a year like this in ways that we haven't seen before and that's that's what needs to be remembered when you get off if your team gets off to that one and two start and you just want your coach fired remember all the dynamics at play remember the fact that this is a year that your coach isn't necessarily getting a free pass but at the same time it seems kind of dumb the judges future based on this strictly alone and it's not so much saying that oh we believe in this coach and we think that he's the future moving forward it's right. we're just not going to make a decision on this yet because we don't have to we don't have yeah.
1: to I, yeah and i think that's that goes should go a long way excuse me i, I agree with you on that i really really enjoy like Throwing up today has been the worst, but when you said that I handled something in a logical and reasonable <laughs> way, that's like this is—it's so worth it now. I'm so glad we did this.
0: We had a great correction. I had a great okay. conversation with David Johnson Marler. As as we said earlier, oh, yeah. under the weather. Uh, we're gonna let you get back to to being sick, but uh, we're gonna close out with our interview with David Johnson. Um, Unfortunately, we're not going to be recording next Monday because I'm going to be on the road, so Pod will be dropping a little bit later next week, barring something totally, totally crazy like, uh, you know, all of a sudden the season's canceled. Again, don't think that'll happen. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen, but at the same time, we'll be ready just in case there is some sort of disaster like that.
1: Yeah, and I have to do this as well. If you guys live in Atlanta uh, Saturday morning, you wanna see this this mug up close and way too personal on a Zoom call TV show. Uh play to win on Fox Five, nine o'clock on Saturday morning. Should be a lot of fun.
0: Marlar talking football. Where else can you get stuff like that, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you get to see my face. Connor, honestly, what we need is a behind the scenes for next week because like of, of or behind the scenes of me trying to record for that show because you would have just absolutely loved to see all the the finagling I was doing with that camera angle so I didn't look fat. That was that was my most important thing. I did not like any of the content.
0: Lovely. Yeah. Well, so that's, there you go. That sounds great. I'm gonna go. I think play with uh, play with the tractor tonight. Did that yesterday, by the way. Um, I'm in Indianapolis right now, so I'm I'm literally at my in-laws farmhouse where they have three horses and they've got you know a bunch of animals and stuff like that so yeah rode a right. tractor last night did some mowing shout out to kegs and eggs <laughs> kramer holy cow that's an experience unlike any other it was awesome
1: did some mowing that's yeah. cool that indianapolis is like a real city though like i told you this, you've, you've been like real high on in indianapolis and i wasn't until i saw pictures of it and it was it looks really cool i, I tell you what i don't like and I'm, I'm surprised at how good the acoustics are that ceiling that you of the room you're in right now with like all the little doilies. I know. The, it's I, interesting. If, if you guys know what I'm talking about, it's like the, what's the best way to put it? It's like an em- embroidered doilies on the top of a ceiling that kind of stick out like a stucco type thing. Yeah. It always scares me.
0: The guest room is uh, a little bit late to be remodeled, but the rest of the house is looking beautiful. They just moved into this like a year ago, so nice. yes. Um, not that anybody really needed to know. There's an intercom that I'm looking at right now, like an old school intercom. Which I like, Y'all, lunch believe, is ready. Yeah, like those basically. Things. One of those. One of those. All right, let's kick it to our interview with David Johnson. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is David Johnson, who covers Ole Miss for 247 Sports. David, I gotta say, we've interviewed a lot of different people on this podcast over the years, but I don't think we've ever interviewed someone who broke the news of their son entering the transfer portal. Um, you just yeah. did that by breaking the news that, that your son Eli, who was Ole Miss's starting center last year, is is no longer opting out, but that he's entering the transfer portal instead. You even had uh sources tell two four seven sports, which is probably a bit more professional than like my son told me he's transferring. Just tell us kind of the the background on, on all of that.
2: Yeah, you know, uh I you know, I think we have different seasons in our lives and uh, you know, Eli is just uh at a point where he's, uh, he's, he's had a change of season and, uh, uh, decided, uh, he wanted to change the scenery. I don't think he was convinced that he wanted to play again when he opted out for the 2020 season, but, uh, mm-hmm. had a change of heart and it's decided that, uh, he does want to play again. He'll finish his master's degree at Ole Miss in December, still with a year of eligibility left. And, uh, As of right now, uh, the last thing he told me is he he wants to exercise that.
0: How's it been with that? Because that's such a different dynamic. It's one thing to have a a coach with a, a son on the team it's another to have a reporter who has a son on the team that he covers like how has that whole deal been like for you for your household and stuff when you know the average person in the public would see that as oh that's like an easy thing but you know you're trying to provide unbiased coverage and stuff like that but obviously your worlds collide on a seemingly everyday basis
2: yeah you know and, and that's been going on really for for eight years because uh Ole Miss began recruiting him when he was a ninth grader in high school, offered him in 10th grade and he committed in 10th grade to Ole Miss. Uh, so it's been a long go with that, but, uh, we always had a rule, you know, that he was a teammate first and, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of how we played it. It, it, it worked well. Um, you know, um, uh, I would not lean on him for inside information and he did volunteer it. So, uh, That's kind of the wall we put up there. We each had to respect uh, our 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 respective domains with one another.
0: We have, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that that I want to be able to get to with you. Uh, The quarterback situation at Ole Miss, uh, Marler, my co-host and I, we we disagree on this, and in a way, I think our disagreement probably feels like how, how the public has been talking about this and how you've been able to kind of gauge the the public interest on it. What's your take on John Rice Plumley and Matt Corral running Lane Kiffin's offense? Who do you think is kind of in position to win this battle and how exactly do you see all of this playing out?
2: Yeah, first of all, it is, it is an intriguing battle because they're really so different. Uh, you know, Corral is rightfully noted as the better passer of the two. John Rice kind of struggled a little bit last year. Uh, his arm strength is not what that is. What, 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 what Corral's is. Um, Matt um, has actually gotten a little faster on his feet over the off season, so you know he can be a threat to run. He probably will not be the ground threat that a John Rice Plumley would be, as we all saw him run for more than a thousand yards last year from the quarterback position. But it is an intriguing battle. Lane Kiffin's going to be coy about this. I, mean, I don't think two weeks out from uh, the opener against Florida. He's going to stand up at the podium and announce a starter. Uh, I don't think he wants to give Dan Mullen that much information. He's going to keep everybody guessing. Right now, though, you're, what, 10, 11 days into fall camp. At this point, I think it's very clear Matt Corral has jumped out as the leader in this competition. Uh, I think also if you look historically at what Lane Kiffin and Jeff Levy have liked to do with the quarterback position, Matt Corral is more the prototypical fit than John Rice Plumley. But, Connor, at the same time, you got a kid that was electrifying last year in John Rice Plumley. You know, do you just put him in a costume and set him on the sidelines if he doesn't win this job? Or do you move him to another position on the field, maybe part time, still get him a few reps at quarterback and uh, let him do what he does from the slot position or, or somewhere in the backfield? Uh, as of this point, and Lane said this on Monday, they have not practiced John Rice Plumlee in any position other than quarterback. And, uh, you know, and I think Kiffin made a valid point. It wouldn't be fair to for him to be moving around to a different position right now while he is in the middle of a quarterback battle. But if I had to place a bet on it at this point, I would go with Matt Corral. Uh, just because right now on the practice field – In last Saturday's scrimmage, where he almost threw for 300 yards, he seems to have the upper hand in the battle. Doesn't mean it won't change, and it might change three or four times before we get there, but uh, an intriguing battle uh, nevertheless Uh, that's going to be fun to watch play out.
0: Those in the pro John Rice Plumlee camp, like myself, just had their heart sink listening to that. No, at the same time, ah. it's it's wild. You you put it best. It is intriguing to see this play out because everybody knows what's at stake with all this with Lane. I always think that that covering a new coach is one of the best times to be on the beat with someone like Lane. Obviously, that takes on an entirely new meaning. How has he embraced this opportunity in Oxford, and what sort of tells you that? This is a much, much different chapter in his career.
2: Well, just being, I think, at Ole Miss is a different chapter in, in his career because Ole Miss is very different from USC or Tennessee or Florida Atlantic. It's uh, got its own set of unique challenges to win here. Uh, you're, in, you're in a very small state, as far as population goes, with two SEC powers inside your borders. And, uh, you know, it's very important who wins a recruiting battle inside the state every single year. Uh, and, again, those unique challenges of being at Ole Miss, which, uh, you know, if you're in the Billy Joel song, you're a lightning rod, and Ole Miss is a lightning <laughs> rod school. Uh, issues uh, seem to find their way home here. And, uh, you know, that's part of the challenge as well. But, uh, you know, in the, the, the introduction of COVID-19 into our society has certainly added a created challenge that Lane Kiffin or nobody else could possibly have anticipated when he took this job back in December. I mean, this is a guy who's had exactly what 11 practices with his football team to this point. Uh, you know, as far as being in pads and shells, um, you know, because there was no spring practice for him to get to, uh, you know, evaluate the talent on the roster. So, uh, a lot of special challenges for this season. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, It makes it even more difficult, and it's amplified even further when you're talking about a first-year coach and a first-year staff.
0: It seems like if Lane were the same guy that he was five to ten years ago, we would have been hearing – a bunch of these stories about him but that hasn't been the case at all i mean he makes headlines for you know the fun that he and michael leach have they have a, a great back and forth already which i'm so excited to see what the future holds for those two coaches in the egg bowl every year just in case it wasn't must see tv enough before it certainly is now what's been your favorite lane story so far in, in oxford just seeing the way that he interacts with with the team the community and and just kind of how he's embraced this uh this new chapter that he's embarked on
2: yeah, probably the night he got off the plane to accept the job, and he's kissing babies at the airport. Then um, he had a pretty he had a pretty good comment uh, afterwards at his press conference uh, that uh, that was a lot warmer greeting than the last time he was on an airport tarmac, referring back to uh, his USC days there. But uh, you know the the reputation that preceded Lane coming into Oxford, uh, I, I just haven't seen that. What I see, and this is my first time covering Lane Kiffin. But, uh, I see a, a, a much more mature coach than what you read about and heard about perhaps at Tennessee or at USC. Um, you know, maybe that, uh, that, that, that he's kind of grown into being a major college head football coach at this point of his career. Uh, that's been my observation of Lane Kiffin and I haven't seen anything, uh, that's indicative of the, uh, of, of the stories you've heard from the past.
0: I've been on board with just about every move that Lane has made so far. But for the life of me, and you're going to be able to provide better insight on this subject than I possibly could, but I couldn't figure out why exactly he wasn't able to keep Mike McIntyre on board when you saw the contract that McIntyre signs with Memphis. And, you know, could you perhaps explain how that went down and why Lane ultimately ended up with DJ Durkin and Chris Partridge running his defense?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it was preference. I think McIntyre was uh, w- was certainly willing to stay in Oxford and work on Lane's staff. Uh, but uh, I think Lane's personal preference was uh, to go elsewhere when, uh, you know, he realized the doors would be open for D.J. and to uh, come in and take this job. And then, you know, the bonus part of that is you get Chris Partridge in here as co-defensive coordinator who is noted as one of the best recruiters in the nation. And, uh, you know, uh Uh, I think everything worked out for everybody really good. McIntyre got a very good position with a very talented Memphis program. D.J. Durkin got back into college coaching. And Chris Partridge elevated himself with the title of co-defensive coordinator. Uh, You know, the defense is going to be a major challenge for Ole Miss this year. They're very thin up front. They're thin in the secondary. They've actually got one of the best linebacker cores in the SEC, I believe. But uh, they're going to have to have some help up front and in the back end of that defense or uh whether it's matt corral or john rice Plumley behind center the rebels are going to have to score an awful lot of points to win ball games this fall
0: so for those who don't follow your work regularly they might not have seen what you dealt with the last five months and even as we have this conversation today where you know we're talking about before before we started recording here you know you have you have limitations still five months after after this that you know you got COVID very early on in this process and you had yeah. a fight for your life and you document you documented it extremely well you know I saw where you said the doctor said your chance of survival was statistically zero can you tell our listeners about your journey when dealing with with all of that and how it is i mean just for the last five six months now something that's taken over our country and you you lived it in a very very real way
2: yeah yeah i'll be glad to and uh you know as we were talking before we got on the podcast i warned you my voice is not back yet uh that's one of the uh lingering after effects uh is that uh my lung capacity is uh is not what it once was and uh Therefore, my voice is not as loud or as boomful as it once was and uh, oftentimes fades on me but uh, yeah I went to uh, I went to a a 24/7 sports convention in Nashville uh, the first week of March and uh, began feeling ill while I was up there with my colleagues and uh, came back home to Oxford after the convention and uh, four or five days passed I progressively started feeling worse, uh, started off with a low pitch nausea um, that uh, ended up turning into just terrible body aches and uh, eventually the cough and eventually respiratory issues. So, uh, and this was, again, very early in the process. Not a lot of people knew a lot about COVID at that time. The tests were not readily available. But so called the doctor, and there were no tests in North Mississippi On a Monday when I called to get tested, Uh, I had to wait until Friday for tests to be in. Uh, Went and tested, and uh, Sunday I found out I was positive, and they immediately sent me to the hospital. In all honesty, I thought I'd be in there two or three days and write back out. As a matter of fact, I was doing radio interviews from a hospital bed on that Wednesday uh, of the day that I crashed, and they had to intubate me. it just happened all of a sudden my oxygen levels went down. I couldn't breathe. Uh, they, uh, they told my family I had about an hour to live uh, before they put me on the uh, ventilator. And um, I, I kind of fought them. I didn't want to go on the vent. I had read the statistics about, uh, you know, your chances of coming off the ventilator are not very good. But eventually they got through my thick skull that either I got on the ventilator or I was not very long for this world. So I um, was on the ventilator for 21 days on life support. And uh, after day nine, I had not improved any. As a matter of fact, I'd probably uh, gotten worse. And they called my wife, the doctors did, the medical team, and told her they they wanted her to sign a do not resuscitate order uh, that – uh My chances were basically statistically zero, as you said, of uh, surviving this, and that uh, being on the ventilator was just kind of a a moot point at at that time. Uh, I thank God every day that she refused to sign the Do Not Resuscitate. Uh, They in turn told her that they were going to take it out of her hands, that it was an emotional decision for her, and they understood. They were going to take it out of her hands and get a court order To remove me off the ventilator um you know just by the luck of draw i have a cousin who is a a family practitioner in the same hospital system and my daughter's boyfriend's stepfather is a cardiologist at the hospital that i was uh i was in so my wife gets on the phone with my cousin my oldest daughter gets on the phone with her boyfriend's stepfather and those two doctors Uh, went to work persuading my medical team to give me a couple of more days before they essentially unplugged me and uh, let me die. And they were successful in doing so. And that weekend, uh, the very next morning, as a matter of fact, after they had called my family in to say goodbye the night before, so the family's back at the house and they're sitting on pins and needles because they can't be with me because of COVID restrictions. And the phone rings, and it's the hospital. And, of course, they're thinking the worst. And um, it was the same doctor who was advocating to take me off life support the day before, telling my wife that I had shown slight improvement overnight. And then the very next day, which happened to be Palm Sunday, the phone rings again. It's It's the hospital. And I had shown 48 continuous hours of improvement and that they were going to fight on. And uh, 11 days later, I came off the ventilator. Due to all the paralytics and medication that I was on, uh, it was another five, six days before I became lucid enough to fully understand who I was, where I was, um, you know, what exactly had transpired. And uh, my total stay in the hospital was 46 days. Uh, when I came out, I could not walk. I could not talk. Um, and I really honestly could not eat. I was surviving off a uh, soup and watermelon. Uh, the only two things that my, my intestines would tolerate. And, uh, over the course of the next six weeks, I, I really made a lot of rapid progress through physical therapy and, uh, speech therapy and all of that good stuff. And, uh, was able to, uh, start walking on my own and, uh, got my voice back to an extent. And, uh, I've been able to start eating and put some of the 52 pounds back on that I lost while I was in the hospital. But the thing we've discovered is that uh, there are so many lingering effects from COVID. Some of it is from the 21 days on life support because they could not, they they were afraid I would not survive a a turn or a move. So I laid in the stationary position for 21 consecutive days. That wreaked uh, hell on my body just to be totally honest with you and uh, a lot of atrophy and effects like that. Um, And then the COVID has lingering effects. I just uh, dealt with a a virus that you get from taking antibiotics for a prolonged period of time called C. diff. Uh, I've had a bout with that the last couple of weeks, but that's finally uh, cleared up and gone away. But it's just, uh, you know, some mornings you wake up feeling okay. Some mornings you wake up feeling like you've been hit by a train and, uh, you know It's going to be that way for a little while. I've still got a long road ahead, but uh, but again, I thank God that I'm here. Uh, I've got a 6-year-old daughter, a 20-year-old daughter, a 22-year-old son, and uh, I'm hoping to be able to see all of them uh, grow old.
0: Man, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And reading the words that you wrote in your column after you were able to, to muster the strength to be able to do it, I mean, it was one of those things that just sort of stops you in your tracks. For those of us who don't have close friends or family members who have experienced what this is like in those those harsh realities in these these cases that are that are bad, it, it really, really kind of shook me. I, I thought I remember thinking about it after I read your story that entire day, and it's it's it has stayed with me for. I mean to think about the the 21 days that you said on life support and 46 days in the hospital you said there was a, a period where you're just trying to figure out what in the world had just happened have you since had time to be able to process the just the magnitude of all this and and the fact that like you're back at work now is an incredible thought in and of itself considering how you probably felt a few months ago where all you wanted was just another breath have you had time to be able to process this, this reality that you experienced?
2: No, to be honest. Um, you know, it's kind of strange. Um, I mean, yeah, I've thought about it, but as far as being able to say I've processed it and I'm okay with it. No, I, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever get used to coming that close to dying. Um, you know, and I, and I've really not, allowed myself to think about that very much. You know, what hurts me the most is knowing, you know, that for that period of time, the anguish that my family was in, um, you know, I was out of it. I was in a coma um, and I don't have very much recollection of that period of time, but I know what they went through. And, um, you know, and, and, and that was one of the things that struck me when, I became lucid enough to uh, to realize, you know, my, my reality and my situation was when I went in the hospital, my wife, my oldest son, and my youngest daughter all had COVID, too. So, you know, that was the the first thing, and I kind of jumped up out of the bed asking the nurse who was explaining everything to me about my family because I didn't know, and That's just uh you know that's uh, that's the thing that bothers me the most mentally is knowing what they were put through when i was uh when I was down, but as far as you know, I've never asked why me um, not gonna do that I mean it was me because you know God willed it to be me and and there's a reason behind everything um I asked why me, why did I get to come home and you know we we read every day that. You know, someone we know or, or, or someone not many degrees separated from us didn't get that opportunity to come home, and um, you know it, it's a it's a very very serious serious thing as we all know. Uh, I get agitated sometimes when I see people on social media refer to it as the common cold or the flu because it's not. Uh, I've had the flu before, and three or four days later, I was fine. Um, you know, that's not the case with this virus. There are a lot of lingering effects of it. I still have a rash. They call it the COVID rash because they really don't know what it is that breaks out on my head uh, periodically. Just little fine uh, dots that uh, that come up that uh, nobody seems to understand yet, you know, why that's the case. Um, uh, but, um, but I will say this. I, I mean, I, I thank God every day uh, for pulling me through it. Uh, it's brought my family closer together, obviously. And uh you know, it, it kinda has a way of uh situating your priorities and making you understand what's really important in life. And uh and, and maybe I needed a little of that. Um you know, I'm forty nine years old and ought to be uh ought to be wise by now, <laughs> but uh you know, sometimes you need you need your bearings set straight and an event like that in your life, uh it, it'll, it'll do that, Connor.
0: Sounds trivial to talk about um, you know, football, but you know, it is something that I know is is a big part of of what you enjoy and you, you love what you get to do and, and it's evident in your work and just seeing the way that you, you know, wrote about it and how grateful you were to see that twenty four seven had had not only, you know, continued to 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 pay you during that time, but you know, they give you an extension yeah. afterwards and just to see the the good nature of people who really rallied in your corner. I mean it's is it touching like go back. If anybody wants to go back, I recommend fully like reading the comments that you got. And it was just it was really inspiring to be able to see that and and knowing you know obviously what you mean in this old Miss community and to be able to tell these stories. Going through all of this the last question I want to ask you is, you know, how, how has this shaped your perspective of what to expect from something like a college football season in 2020? Is this something where you feel conflicted about it, knowing how serious this can be and, and understanding how, how, how this can impact so many lives? How has this sort of shaped your mindset of how we talk about trying to have a college football season during a pandemic?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Connor. To be honest with you, despite everything that we've been through as a family, you know, and and I think, uh, I think I speak for my entire family on this. We understand people have to make a living and life has to go on. You have to be very careful while you're out there. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, the shutdown of everything that hurts people in, in different ways too. It takes lives in different ways. And, uh, you know, we're in a college town here in Oxford, Mississippi, where the economy depends immensely on a college football season. And I have friends all over this town who own businesses who, you know, may lose their house. They may lose their cars if uh, if they can't keep their doors open. And, uh, you, know, you know, my daughter, my son, they have friends going to school here at Ole Miss that uh, – you know, may not can afford to to go to school if they don't have jobs, waiting tables or or doing other things that college students do. So, you know, despite what we've been through and we've seen the worst side of COVID, you know, Sam's death, um, you know, I I really think, uh, you know, decisions need to, for the most part, be left to the individual and to the institutions. And uh, I don't fault anyone for trying to play college football this fall and I don't fault the big 10 or the pac 12 for, for going the other direction. Um, you know, I wish it could be a very personal decision for everyone. Sometimes it can't be a personal decision. It has to be a group or an institutional decision, but you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. Um, if, if that makes any sense at all, um, you know, I mean, I have a job, uh, you have a job dependent on college football season. Um, I, for one, am glad we're going to have a season. At least it looks like we are at this point. Uh, You know, I pray that uh, all these safety precautions that everyone's taken work out. Uh, But you can't change human nature. Again, we live in a college town, and college kids are going to congregate, and college kids are going to socialize, and they're going to party. And they fully understand it's not likely to affect them. You know, the problem is you have to get them to understand that it could affect their parents or their grandparents or anyone else's parents or grandparents who are elderly, you know, or the sick or infirmed. And uh, it, it's a difficult situation that we as a society face. And uh, I hate to see the, the bickering on, on social media back and forth between sides, people that have drawn lines in the sand, because there's not a right or wrong answer to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to any of it. Um, you know, we just need to be responsible citizens and navigate it the best we can.
0: David, I appreciate your time so much. Uh, your story is incredibly inspiring and. We are, uh, everybody, I can promise you SDS listeners are, are thinking of you and your family and wishing you all the best and looking forward to all, all the great coverage that you are going to continue to provide. We're going to have to bring you on back during the season. Hopefully when we're talking about whether or not Lane's going to be starting John rice, Plumley or Matt Corral yeah. or, or whatever. Um, but really, really appreciate your time. And, uh, we're definitely going to have to do this again soon. Well,
2: Connor, I thank you for having me on, man. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, And we're doing fine and uh, much appreciation for all the thoughts and prayers out there for us. But uh, we're going to get through 2020 and 2021 is going to be better for all of us.
0: (laughs) Amen to that, David. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take it easy.
2: Okay, Connor. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care.